Good morning. I am Pastor Mike Overstreet, and this is week three of our series, Fill in the Blank, our series on the game Mad Libs, and a little bit about the Bible, but mostly the game Mad Libs, which is this awesome word game, right? We've been talking about it for a few weeks, where you play with this larger, unfinished story that you've been given by filling in some key spaces, some key phrases or words that have been left blank within it choosing your own words, and thus ultimately crafting the story that's created and read out loud at the end. We've been talking about Mad Libs because it captures what I believe is a key dynamic of the spiritual life. That is, this idea that we live in the larger story of God, which has its own set frameworks, patterns, and directions. And yet, at the same time, this story and our participation with it has some blanks left within it. Blanks that we as human beings are invited to fill however we choose, good, bad, and ugly, ultimately shaping the story that we write with our lives inside of God's larger story for the universe. Unless, as I've been saying over the course of this series, we can think about discipleship almost as an invitation from Jesus to play a version of spiritual Mad Libs, where, Through his story, we change the words that maybe we've used to fill in the blanks of our internal stories and beliefs about ourselves, God, others, and ultimately, in doing so, transform who we think we are, how we live, and the story that we write with our lives in this world. And we played Mad Libs week one, and we're going to play it again today, but with a twist I'm going to reveal at the end. So if you know the game, uh, I'll say a category. Y'all shout out an answer. Make sure you project. And we are going to see what we create. And remember, as always, keep it PG, E3. I feel like I always have to direct that at you, Chris Turner, but that's a whole other thing. No. (laughs) That's not on brand. Um, So I'm going to say a category of word. Y'all shout it out. I need an adjective. Fuzzy, that was the same that you picked last time. (laughs) I'm going to need a verb. Walk, Walk? okay. That's going to be weird. Uh, I'm going to need a noun. Dog. Oh, that's funny. I need a profession. Yeah. Musicians. I wonder who said that. Someone in the band. Uh, I need a noun. Penguin. (laughs) Oh, boy. I need a verb. Play? Okay. That's kind of cute. I need another verb. Run. I need a location. Maui. (laughs) I need another location. One more? Aruba. (laughs) Okay, so two points of order before we read this. First, this was Liz Wilk's idea. So if it offends you, uh, email her. Don't email me. Second, we're playing Mad Libs with the Bible story that we're covering today. So let's see what heresy y'all came up with. Some men brought to Jesus a fuzzy man walking on a mat. That is counter to the story. (laughs) When Jesus saw their dog, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. How strange. 
At this, some of the musicians said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. (laughs) Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain such evil thoughts in your penguin? (laughs) Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and play? That kind of works. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to run. So he said to the fuzzy man, get up, take your mat, and go to Maui. (laughs) Then the man got up and went to Aruba, I guess, instead. (laughs) Yikes! But there were no lightning bolts, so I guess we didn't quite offend the God of the universe. Round of applause, everybody. (laughs) And you may think that was blasphemy, but I only half did this because I thought it would be funny. That's definitely a reason, don't get me wrong. I also did this because I think in this particular story, what we're gonna see is that words matter immensely to Jesus. He is incredibly intentional about the words he chooses and the order that he says them in. And I believe that that's because he believes that getting words wrong or out of order in some stories can create incredibly harmful ideas about who God is, especially when it comes to our sentence for today. This mad lib sentence that I want to sit with that comes from this story, which is this, God is blank and he blanks my brokenness. See, I think Jesus believes that how we fill in the blanks of this particular story matters so, so, so much. It changes entirely who we think we are, who we think our God is for good and ill. To get why, let's return to the actual story, which is not about a fuzzy man. Just FYI. Thank you, Lindsay. It's from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 9. You see, Jesus at this point in the Gospel has been healing, he's been teaching, he's been doing his ministry for quite some time, and we find him in Galilee, kind of his home base, where this story is then given to us. It's a story about people seeking Jesus's help. We pick up in verse 2. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, briefly, this account is also in Mark and Luke, which is actually probably where you've heard it, because they provide a little bit more information about what's going on. It's an incredibly famous story. Four guys want to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus so that he can heal them, but the house is too crowded. So what do they do? Well, in their determination, they dig through the roof, which is probably a thatched roof, and they lower him down in front of Jesus, who then heals him. They bring their friend in, they set him before Jesus, and this is what I want to start with. Notice what Matthew says. He says, Jesus sees their faith. Now, this is probably strange for us as 21st century Americans. As Westerners, is faith something that you see? Not usually, right? Faith, at least in English, is not something that we tend to talk about as visible. We've relegated that word more often than not to mean beliefs, things that we know, statements of faith. That's obviously not all that faith is to Jesus because he doesn't quiz them on scripture. He doesn't pull them aside and say, well, what do you guys think about this prophecy from Jeremiah, right? He also doesn't ask them for the church's website so he can peruse their statement of faith. So what's going on? Well, let's act it out briefly. Imagine I'm Jesus, I'm not, just FYI. But for today, imagine I'm Jesus, and these fine people, Rob, Michelle, you guys can be, you three will be the friends, you're gonna be the paralyzed man. 
So I'm Jesus. Here's what I need you to do. I'm gonna need you to go outside, Rob. I'm gonna need you to climb up on the roof. I'm gonna need you to cut a hole in our roof, and then I'm gonna need you to create a pulley system and lower him down so I can heal him. Are you good to do that? Yeah. I don't believe you. <laughs> that seems hard, right? Thank you, though. I appreciate your, your excitement, your eagerness. But let's just act like you did that, right? What do I see? So that's your question. What do I see? That's all you needed to say. You nailed it, Rob. I see people carrying their injured friend. Yeah, round of applause for Rob. I see people carrying their friend who cannot walk, people who have gone through great lengths to do what? Just to get their friend in front of Jesus. So what does Jesus see? He sees their actions, right? And in them, that they believe that Jesus can do something that no one else can to make their friend right, this person that they love. Jesus sees their trust. So he turns to the paralyzed man. In a brief tangent again, we don't know the length, cause, or extent of his paralyzation, but such extreme illnesses and physical conditions often carried implications and assumptions in the ancient world. The Old Testament, for example, isn't a medical textbook or a science textbook, and it's not trying to be. It sees the body, mind, and heart holistically as intertwined, connected, and thus it holds an incredibly complex vision concerning why people get sick or get broken. It has a whole bunch of diverse stories that have very different ideas about what takes place when someone gets this ill. Sometimes it's connected to sin. Most of the time, we see it in the Psalms connected to our internal state as the natural consequence of grief, regret, remorse, anxiety, these things that wear on us physically, they're inside of us. And then the longest story about illness in the entire Bible, the book of Job, a perfectly righteous man gets incredibly sick without having done anything at all. In fact, one of the central lessons of Job is that you can't know if someone's hardships are in any way related to their choices or their character, and actually you're kind of a terrible person if you assume they are. All that to say, the Bible's view of why these things happen to people is incredibly complex. It believes that humans get broken for many reasons and that we often cannot ever assume why they ended up in this state, which is hard, right? We as human beings prefer simple causation. Someone gets lung cancer, and our first thought is often, did they smoke? Am I right? Or we see someone homeless, and your first thought is, they must have failed somehow to end up here. Attributing suffering to chance or not knowing why is incredibly uncomfortable. It's humbling. It's scary. If we did that, if we just assumed that someone's brokenness wasn't something they earned, then we'd have to also assume that it could just as easily happen to us, and we do not want to do that, do we? So we tend to jump to the assumption that someone broken must have done something to get that way, fair or not, leaning into the far simpler explanation. That's true today, and it was often true in the first century Israel. You see, the stories about extreme illnesses and physical conditions and brokenness being connected to the consequence of sin had gained an oversized place in the imaginations and the assumptions of people in Jesus's day. 
which we can judge. We can be like, how barbaric the ancient world was. But y'all, we still do this all the time. Don't be so judgmental. We all still do this in our own cruddy way. All to say, this man's condition carried stigma. That's important to this story because we need to understand that to get why Jesus responds the way he does. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, which is an odd statement. First, is this why the man came to Jesus? No. I mean, if I was him, I'd be like, cool, cool, cool. The legs, Jesus. <laughs> Let's stay focused on why I'm here, right? <laughs> but second, it's odd because I think it's easy to think, well, there you go. Jesus believes that this man's paralysis was caused by his sin. Except I think that's a total misreading of this story. One, Jesus in the Gospel of John rebukes his disciples elsewhere for making such a connection. But even more than that, is the man immediately healed upon Jesus proclaiming his sins forgiven? No, which should be a clue. If there is a direct correlation between his sin and his physical condition, then the moment that his sin is forgiven, he should be healed, correct? And he is not. I think this is interesting. Jesus is ordering this healing in an intentional way. I think he's doing something far more profound. You see, it's about the words that he uses. And like I said, the order of the story. Jesus will heal his body, spoiler alert. But he chooses to heal something else first. His response could perhaps better be stated as this. Little child, do not be afraid. You are right with God. See, I think Jesus knows that he could heal this man's body, but to fully heal him, to truly heal him, he needs to deal with his internal narrative about who God is first. That God is different than the story he's been given. What narratives do you think this man holds about God? Every day, your family, your neighbors, your strangers, they look at you and they assume that you did something to deserve the worst brokenness of your life. I mean, we do that today, so we can imagine that was happening to him, can we not? I mean, don't you think that if you had a story that God looked at you and, or your ancestors and then punished you in such a way for some sin he saw, don't you think that might change the story you hold about who God is? What story about God do you think you'd write in your head? I mean, fill out the sentence, God is blank and he blanks my brokenness. What words might you use? How about this? God is cruel, and he punishes me ceaselessly for my brokenness. God is unmerciful, and he ignores my brokenness. I mean, imagine you have those stories, and you're brought before Jesus, and he steps towards you, and this is what he says. He says, little child, don't be afraid. God isn't punishing you. You are right with God. You are right with I mean, can you imagine how this would have impacted this man? I don't know about y'all, but that hits me. It's like the Bible's version of the final scene from Goodwill Hunting, right? It's not your fault. It's not your fault. God isn't angry at you. But the legs, Jesus, right? Verse three. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Now, again, 
it's super easy to judge passages like this in the New Testament. You kind of want to think these folks must hate six people. But we aren't first centrally Israelites, and we also often miss the controversial things that Jesus does, quite frankly, to arouse and earn the conflicts that he ends up in. And this is one such case. The law, or the Torah, covers the commandments given to, from God to Israel about how they are supposed to live as his people. And the teachers of the law were the people tasked by Israelite society with interpreting these commandments correctly to help God's people stay faithful to how God calls them to live. They don't hate sick people. See, they're upset because, quite frankly, it's their job to be upset at someone who says what Jesus just said. You see, there was a God-ordained Old Testament-approved process for having your sins forgiven in first century Israel when it came to God. That is, you went to the temple in Jerusalem, you went to a priest, you sacrificed an animal, and then they declared over you, your sins are forgiven. Jesus ain't in Jerusalem. Jesus ain't at the temple. He ain't a priest. And the paralyzed man, has he sacrificed anything or said, I need forgiveness for X, Y, or Z? No, right? He just showed up. And yet Jesus proclaims him forgiven anyway. I think you don't understand how radical this is. He is putting himself in the position of priest and temple, offering freely forgiveness that only God can offer. It is their job to be like, that's not how you do it. It would be like if I started unilaterally from the stage handing out presidential pardons. How many of you would think that was normal behavior? How many of you would think I have the authority to do such things? None, none of you would. You'd think I'm crazy. You'd be like, you can't do that. That is what they do. They're like, you can't do that. Blasphemy. Verse four, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain such evil thoughts? Jesus is a pretty tough guy sometimes. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Question, which is easier, telling someone they're forgiven or going to medical school, discovering how to heal spinal cord injury and then restoring movement to a paralyzed body? I'm gonna go with the talking part, right? The talking part's easier. Jesus continues, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Jesus asks the question and then he answers it. Jesus heals him, he gets up, he takes his mat, he walks home. I think this displays two things. One, that Jesus has the authority to wield what they previously thought only God could. And two, I think it shows us how Jesus is going to wield that authority with one clear purpose, to fix broken, wounded people, to make right what's gone wrong, to bring new creation to what is broken. Y'all, isn't that a beautiful story? Am I the only one who thinks that is just a beautiful image of how compassionate, how intelligent Jesus is? I mean, I think it rewrites the entire sentence. I mean, one, God is utterly compassionate. And what does he do? He moves towards my brokenness. He's not afraid of it. Or two, God is good. He is kind. He is loving. He is just. He understands, cares about, and wants to heal my brokenness. That is what he came here to do. I mean, that is beautiful. 
Do you think that narrative would give this man a better story about who his God is? Do you think that would bring him healing in a holistic way? I do. And to close, I just want us to take a moment to find ourselves in each character of this story because I think this is a powerful story to do that with. I want us to ask, how does this rewrite my story about who God is and how I follow Jesus? First, the paralyzed man. Where have you been struggling with brokenness emotionally, behaviorally, mentally, physically for a long, long time? This man gives us an image. He has one simple driving force. There's something that he can't fix and he's willing to do anything to get in front of who can, Jesus, to just get there, lay it all down, surrender it all and just say, I need help. And that's where he finds healing. And y'all, I wanna be crystal clear right now. I am not a health and wealth preacher. I am not promoting faith healing. I believe firmly that the Bible does not uphold that someone would be healed if they just had more faith. I think that's one of the most toxic narratives we have in Christianity. Some brokenness, some illnesses, especially physically and mentally, are lifelong burdens. But what if Jesus offered you a different way to carry them. Where it couldn't take your peace. Where it didn't get to define who you are. Where it didn't undermine your self-worth or tell you who God thinks you are. What if you were able to experience a new story about what that brokenness means and who God thinks you are? Do you think that might bring healing in the midst of that suffering? Where do you need to move towards Jesus to hear, little child, don't be afraid. You are right with God. He's not punishing you. He's not ignoring you. He loves you and he's moving towards you. Second, let's sit with the friends. I think this is a powerful image of who we are called to be as the church when it comes to how we see and respond to broken people. When we encounter someone truly broken, do we as Christians have the right to assume that we know why they are broken? Yeah, right answer, no. Do we have the right to assume that they've done something wrong or that God is punishing them? No. Jesus doesn't believe that we have the capacity to judge that at all. In fact, I think he believes that asking why misses the point entirely. When he looks at a broken person, he doesn't see a laundry list of why. He sees someone who has experienced great suffering that if he responds to in a compassionate way, that they could experience holistic healing and a radical display of God's love and glory. That is how we respond to broken people. The friends do not judge their broken friend. They do not assume that they can fix him. Instead, they get him to the one who heals. They get alongside him. They carry him. And they take him where in that moment he could not go on his own to the feet of Jesus. What would it look like if that's how we responded to brokenness in the church, to the most broken people in the church? Do you think the church might have a better reputation in this world? And finally, the teachers of the law, who is threatened by Jesus in this story? 
people more interested in preserving religion and hierarchy than letting the living God turn their world upside down. People terrified of complexity, of not knowing. People who prefer simplicity even when it's harmful to people that they were put on this earth to help. We can't fall into that trap when it comes to the most broken and the most marginalized. Else we might find ourselves decrying mercy, justice, and healing as it takes place through Jesus right in front of us because it just doesn't fit our box. And that's a disaster, y'all. But, and I think this is important too, we also must prepare ourselves for this response if we are to be like Jesus in this world. He heals and tells the most broken people of his society that they're okay with God, that he doesn't care about who they've been or what they've done, that he just wants to heal them. And y'all, that is never going to be popular in this world. Telling the murderer, the addict, the thief, the people broken because of the things that we find easiest to call their fault, just retribution, right consequence, punishment, Jesus moves towards those people and says, little child, don't be afraid. You are right with God. That makes people uncomfortable. That ain't simple. That humbles and makes us identify with the very people that we want to identify with the least, does it not? Because they could be us pretty easily. And that will always feel threatening to this world. But it brings healing. It is what the kingdom is here to do. It is who our God is. So where do you need to hear, little child? Don't be afraid, you are right with God. Where do you need to come to the feet of our Lord and just say, help me? Where do you need to carry a friend in your life for a season to get him to the one who heals? Where do you need to rewrite your story and become like this story in the world that desperately needs it. Reflect on those questions. And let's listen to this last song. And remember who our God is. Little child, don't be afraid. You are right with God. Amen.